0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Today, we're honored to have a very special guest, massive fan of his work. Uh, and I'm, of course, I'm talking about Peter St. Ange. Before I bring him on the show, I do want to give a shout out to the Bitcoin company that makes this show possible. Swan Bitcoin is the best place to build your Bitcoin stack. It's being built by Bitcoiners. It's for Bitcoiners. If you go to swan.com simply, I think if you buy the first hundred dollars, you get ten dollars for free. Highly recommend it. It's where I stack my Bitcoin. Check out swan.com today. All right, everybody. No more delay. Let's bring Peter up on on stage. Hey, Peter. How are you? Not bad, Nico. How are you? Good, good. Uh, We met in the flesh for the first time in Los Angeles. That was awesome.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, it, It was beautiful out there. It was a great gang. It was a really good vibe at that conference. It was just the right size. It was it was fun.
0: Uh, you had the talk after mine, uh, or I think it was before yes. mine. Uh, what was your talk about?
1: Uh, let's see. I was up there with Stefan Lever and We were talking about Austrian economics. So of course you of were. A primer. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Of course you were with Stefan. Yeah.
1: yeah right. What else? And um, I've actually known Stefan for years and years. Uh, we knew each other way back in, when there was free speech on Facebook. So that was kind of that was like my hangout, you know. And then I got censored because I posted something about. Hunter Biden. So that ended up being <laughs> my demise. That was back when, you know, you didn't know what you weren't allowed to say. And so you would kind of say stuff. And then, yeah, you would be surprised the next day that, oh, apparently I can't mention. Let's see, I had Hunter Biden and China in the same sentence. And, uh, you know, they were like, sorry, an error has occurred. And I thought, well, that's odd. And so I kept trying to rearrange the sentence. And finally, I was able to post the progeny of the Democratic candidate and a large country in Asia neighboring Vietnam. And okay, that they allowed me to post. That was like as close as I could get to the statement I intended. So anyway, so I ditched Facebook, uh, came over to Twitter and then thank God for Elon. uh, He bought Twitter and managed to do what all of our politicians failed, uh, which is actually giving us some free speech.
0: Yeah. And in a way, like in a way, because I know like a lot of the conservative movement was like the ones that were getting the brunt end of the stick. But in a way, I'm glad in hindsight that they didn't interrupt, that politicians didn't step in. Because at the end of the day, from an Austrian perspective, the free market stepped in and solved the problem. You know, you had, of course, this was an offshoot. You had Elon stepping in, buying Twitter And then you had the rise of Rumble, and I'm a huge fan of Rumble, Um, and that platform's been growing. We've been doing pretty good over there. So, I mean, I want to get your take on that.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, it was tricky when we were talking about the censorship because so I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I don't generally look to government for the solutions. Uh, The tricky thing here is that you were kind of in a situation where you had to build your entire freaking infrastructure, right? Uh, because the activists were going to go after your payment processors and your, you know, your um, web service provider. And uh, I mean, just, just the entire thing, your landlord. Uh, and so really it took somebody with the kind of resources that Elon has in order to break through it, right? He could basically say, well, fine, and, you know, if, if PayPal doesn't want to <laughs> sponsor uh, my platform, then I'll just build my own, right? And that's actually a credible threat. And so PayPal is not gonna screw around with that, or at least they haven't yet. Um, So in a sense, we got lucky. I mean, we got the absolute perfect person, which is somebody so freaking rich uh, that he could cut through that. You know, it it was just like a thicket, you know, it's like like if you're going through a strawberry patch that lasts for miles and just you slash through one and there's another and another and another. So in a sense, we got lucky. Um, Unfortunately, it, it, it was solved for now but i think it's a very real threat in the future that you have this uh, unholy alliance between the tech oligarchy and governments and largely you know it's kind of a protection racket so um tech in, including zuckerberg including dorsey they had been free speech absolutists they they had actually early on taken a lot of, a lot of hits over free speech because their business plan was to get everybody on earth spending all of our free time debating crap on Facebook uh, or on Twitter. And so they were actually very, very pro-free speech, but I think really Gamergate kind of planted the seeds of this sort of ongoing protection racket where governments can threaten all these companies. And at some point they give in, right? Partly they hire people who are sympathetic to the government's point of view uh, and partly they just say, it's not worth the fight. You know, we've, we've got a trillion dollar business here. And if we stand up for free speech, you know, if we go back to the old days where you had the warrant canaries and all that good stuff, uh, if we go back to those old days, then we risk getting completely shut down. You know, they have a head on a pike in the form of parlor, right? I mean, they showed exactly what happens to you if you screw with, with the rest of them. And so, I mean, really, if you're the CEO of a public company, you can't run that risk. You have a fiduciary duty not to run that risk. So they've really created this, um, the polite term is corporatist. I don't want you to want to get in any trouble with any F words. Um, but they've really built this corporatist, uh, alliance between government and the tech oligarchy. And the problem is that that is impenetrable for anybody, but the richest person in the world who has balls of steel. And we got damn lucky that he's there, but they'll be back.
0: Oh, they, and they are back. I mean, the attack yep. with um, Media Matters and yep. attacking. Oh, for sure.
1: It's it's endless, the crap they go after on them. What they just denied, there was a $900 million subsidy from the government for providing like rural broadband or something. And Starlink, of course, was in line for that because Starlink is better than <laughs> any other solution. Uh, and so the FCC just decided that, no, nah, no, nah, he's not going to qualify for that. I mean, it's absolutely endless what they're deploying about him, which gives me some sympathy for the other cowards uh, in the sense that, I mean, really, they they will destroy you. Anybody uh, less than Elon and they would destroy him.
0: Yeah. And, and why do you think this is happening? So I, I have, you know, and of course, I'm, I'm coming from the, from the, I've been a Bitcoiner, I think a third of my life. Um, so I'm coming from the Bitcoiners perspective, which is, um, I think we're living through this very turbulent time in history, which I call the disintermediation of information and the, disinter- the disintermediation of money, disintermediation of information start happening first. And then the disintermediation of money is like kind of overlapping it. And right. I think there's, get, the po- government's had so much power controlling the narrative for so long, but
1: mm-hmm. the internet yep. came
0: along. And, you know, people like me and you, we just have a camera, we have a microphone. And all of a sudden we can speak directly peer to peer with our audience without going through these so-called intermediaries. And I think it freaks them out. I think it puts the fear of God in them.
1: Yeah, I think you describe it uh, perfectly. That's exactly what happened. Um, If we had to put a date on it, it would be Brexit and then Trump. So 2016, the lesson, you know, they had spent the past, really the past hundred years just kind of leaning back and racking up their wins you know they launched uh, it's called the 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 long march through the institutions yes. so that was an explicit socialist goal to try to take over institutions like education or media uh they succeeded wildly and at that point you know if you're in a democracy and if you own the two industries that can shape thought just kick back you know every single generation is going to be more and more indoctrinated uh you know this is why republicans in washington get a lot of heat including from people like me for not fighting Uh, but i do understand why they don't fight because every narrative is going to go against them if you're talking about the debt ceiling limit for example that is entirely going to be framed you know for 70 percent of voters that's going to be framed by the left and the left alone uh so anyway they were living this in in this great world they could just kick back they could cash the crony profits you know they could just every day they would pick up the newspaper and it's just endless good news everything is getting better okay that was the world that they got used to for really about 100 years uh and you know if we put a date on it really accelerating probably in the 1960s so you're talking about 50 years of just unremitting advances uh and then you get brexit followed soon after by Trump. And, you know, those were two events where they deployed the entire thought industrial complex or uh, um, propaganda industrial complex towards, you know, rejecting Brexit and rejecting Trump, and it didn't work. And I think you're absolutely right, that freaked them out. They started saying, wait a second, we're not actually gonna win, we're losing. And the reason was the internet, obviously, right? So that allowed you to bypass the gatekeepers, uh, people like you or I can talk to people directly. Uh, a lot of my videos get a million views. This is, you know, subsan- I think that would make it the top rated show on MSNBC anyway, <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and what, what I, I shoot on an iPhone with a, with a mic um, and anybody can do this. Like I've had dozens of people reach out and I've kind of mentored them and taught them how to do it. And okay, you know, you gotta do the sound. Key detail if anybody's listening and wants to start doing videos, don't worry about the video. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about the video quality. I'm not actually that good looking. Sound. The sound has to be perfect. All right. If the sound is not perfect, people will turn it off because it's unbearable. You yourself do this. So put yourself in the eyes of the audience. But at any rate, that ability to bypass the gatekeepers, right? They'd put all their eggs in the gatekeepers. Okay. They had, they you know, in their long march through the gatekeepers. Uh, and then we just, I mean, we we completely bypassed it, right? So we did for information, well, the internet did for information uh, really what Bitcoin does for money, right? Just completely um, disintermediates, right? It makes it a relationship, like a peer-to-peer relationship as opposed to the sort of broadcast relationship where it can be censored at the center. Uh, so absolutely, they freaked out. They put everything they had in the censorship. They, they will not give that up. Uh, it's going to take, I think, ultimately the Supreme Court Uh, Elon has been fighting. He's been absolutely astounding. Um, But, you know, there's many countries where this is happening. Elon is one man. He does not have the resources. You know, if you look at what happened in Brazil, for example, where questioning the election got people thrown in prison, I think it was 20-year terms for questioning um, the election, doing nothing further than that. So, I mean, the the censorship is on the march in every country on earth. Uh, Elon is fighting the good fight. Um, but ultimately the Supreme Court uh of the United States, I think, is going to be the most important institution. And what it has to do is to stand up and defend the First Amendment. Uh, if it can do that, then you know, as long as you have free speech in the US, I think that is a kernel for the rest of the world to look to. Fundamentally, there's really only one good uh ruling document, one good sort of legal system in terms of censorship. Uh, there's only one good one in the entire earth, and that is the United States. Everything sucks uh, in the rest of the world. So a, a, a lot, I think, fundamentally is riding on the Supreme Court. I love what Elon's doing. I think a lot of what he's doing is winning people over to our cause. So I do think that we have more and more converts, like more and more voters who think that censorship is a big issue. Uh, but fundamentally, I think it's kind to come to the Supreme Court. You know, if, if you look just a couple of years ago... You had even conservatives uh, writing papers. I remember there was one in 2019 uh, where they were calling it so-called censorship, or you know, they would say people who who feel that they're censored or imagine that. And I mean, it was it was relentless back then, right? That was long after Alex Jones got kicked off. That was long after the the whole witch hunt, right? Because that that really started immediately after Trump. So they had chased all these people off. We all had to be careful what we were saying uh you couldn't you know quote thomas jefferson about the you know tree of liberty uh that would be you know that would be bannable that's completely insane thomas freaking jefferson uh but even conservatives you know they were calling it alleged and so-called and imagined um so you know i think we've come a long ways now uh you know if you talk about censorship nobody shakes their head and kind of looks at you like well maybe maybe just nobody watches your stuff man okay people I think, widely, um, the majority of the population, um, certainly on the right, and I think even in the middle, uh, they accept that there is um, a lot of censorship going on, that this is material in terms of public policy. Uh, So I do think that we're advancing, but but I think it's a long road from here, and hopefully the Supreme Court's going to weigh in. They just took up a couple cases that they might...
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, to, to add to your point, but the long walk, uh, uh you know, through the institutions, and I, I'm originally from Venezuela, right? So I saw oh, wow. collectivist ideology yeah, for sure. destroy the country. And I remember the early days of Trump. I was like, this looks familiar. It's almost as if, mm-hmm. uh, America is going through a cultural revolution light. Right. I think it was mm-hmm. Gramsci that was responsible for that. And then it was, um, and then the the tactics really uh, they're they're taking a cue from Solinsky and Rules for Radicals, right? Which is yep. whatever whichever way your opponent reacts, you win in every situation. Your goal is just to get your opponent to react, and then you just see people walking into that trap over and over and over again because they're just not wor- versed um, in that philosophy. But I, I would agree with you; they were extremely successful in this. Um, And in a way that honestly is a tragedy, right, which is you see my generation and the younger generation, um, they're blaming capitalism for a lot of these woes, and they're like asking for more collectivism. They're asking for more government intervention, and it's the government intervention that caused all these woes in in, in the first place. Now, my question to you is, and I I think I had the honor of talking to Dean about this, I don't think that collectivist ideologies are politically viable – under a sound money standard. Under Bitcoin, right, I don't think it's possible. And the reason I say that is, you take away the most effective the most effective uh, method they have of wealth redistribution, wealth redistribution which their ideology depends on, upon, which is the wealth, redistrib- wealth redistribution mechanism of inflation. So if you take that away, what do they do? You know, how do they, how do they pay the right people? How do they continue to grow the administrative state that keeps them in power in the first place.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can certainly still do it. Um, the Inca empire was communist. It was totalitarian regime, uh, it, you know, and <laughs> uh, they, they actually had a fiat money, I believe. Uh, I, I believe it was based on uh, threads. But at any rate, it is certainly possible uh, without uh, control of the money, but it is certainly a lot harder right um you've had various times in history even under gold standards where countries have nonetheless gone uh totalitarian now generally they get off the gold standard is one of the first things they do right and so you have to kind of zoom in and and see the specific timing point is that you can get power even in a commodity standard system uh however once you get totalitarian power you know you have kind of this honeymoon period where uh, you know, you 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 raid the warehouses and you eat up and, you know, everything's free. And at that point, everybody says, my God, the socialists were right. It does work. Look at that. Everybody's got free food. And of course, you know, at some point you've eaten up the warehouses. Typically you've got like a year or two of stock just kind of lying around. So once you've eaten up the seed corn at that point, uh, it quote unquote goes wrong. Um, so, you know, and and that's kind of uh, like the history <laughs> Uh, of how these things work. And when that happens in a commodity system, right? So when a commodity system goes communist, typically uh, you'll have that kind of grace period where everything is wonderful. And then the hungry times start hitting, they start losing uh, public support. And that's the point that they typically go inflationary. Um, But having said, you know, your broader point that money enables the authoritarian or totalitarian regimes i think that's absolutely true um you know if you sit down and and work out the numbers i would guess that about half of the federal government's ability to capture power in the us has been because of the federal reserve uh there's a couple mechanisms for that but fundamentally if you control an organization that can print up bidding tickets that you can use to take every single thing in society, including to make people work for you. Okay. So you can use those, those, you know, confetti, that fiat money to uh, harness all of society's resources. It, 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 it's actually kind of surprising that that doesn't automatically lead to a totalitarian outcome. Maybe it does. Maybe it's just with a delay, which is, you know, we are the ones who are trying to delay it. Um, so, you know, I think the short of it is that if you are in a fiat regime, uh, you are nearly guaranteed to ultimately end up in an authoritarian system. On the other hand, if you have a commodity based money system, whether it's gold or Bitcoin, you will have taken one of their main tools away. You would have taken at least half of their power. Uh, and at that point you have a much better fighting chance. So then, you know, then we move to the next. Sort of questioning the equation which is um you know the ability to control the narrative and 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 that gets into some of the internet stuff that we were just talking about um but for sure getting rid of the fiat i think radically evens up the game and you know if we zoom into particular moments so if we had to put a date on when the world started going downhill uh I think I'd put that around 1913, 1914. So really, the lead-in to World War One. I. I think Safi has talked about this as well, uh, and I suspect that he also tags that period as as basically the uh, beginning of the crisis. Uh, and in that period, you know, the the um, I mean, the money obviously was a huge enabler of that. Okay. Uh, I question, you know, if we didn't have the Federal Reserve would, uh, would the European, uh, allies, France and Britain, would they have felt like they could count on the U S to enter the war? Right? Because the thing is, once you have fiat money, you can hide the cost of things like war. Okay. People don't have to see it because you can just print it up, right? So you can hide the cost for long enough to the war for the war to go on. the point where you've got casualties people are angry now they're they're angry at the huns who are rampaging across belgium so in a sense fiat acts as kind of a venture capitalist for a lot of these crises okay so saying that fiat takes away half the power uh, sketched large but if we zoom in to specific episodes like that key episode the beginning of world war one i think fiat without fiat, that war would not have happened. There was no reason for the war. Everybody at the time said, this is so weird. There's no reason for the war. What are they fighting over? Uh, Sarajevo, who cares? It it, it was this little backwater nothing. Uh, Nobody really cared that much. Uh, Everybody understood that Austria had an emotional reason why they had to do something about it. And beyond that, it was kind of like everybody wanted to pick a fight. Why did everybody want to pick a fight? That's not normal. Uh, And I think that was really fiat money that did that uh you know COVID, i think is the same story so you know if you sort of do a thought experiment and you ask all right COVID hits we have a commodity system whether it's gold or whether it's bitcoin and some junior bureaucrat shows up the planning meeting he goes okay i I got a crazy idea we're gonna shut down the entire economy all right i know taxes are gonna plunge right we might lose half tax revenue but that's okay because we can just lay off the government workers right so he would have been fired, right? That would have been it for him. He would have been exiled out to, you know, Alaska or Guam. Uh, in fact, what they had was every country in the world knew that they had a gigantic money printer, and they knew that if they talked about dead grandmas, then no central banker would have the balls to stand up to them. And so, when that junior banker came in, or that that junior advisor, they all said, "Well, that's, you know." He could say let's shut down the economy and we'll just have jerome powell print up the money and they all said well that's a fascinating idea so you know i think if you zoom into every crisis uh, the vast majority of them only became a crisis because governments had access to fiat money
0: i mean and i completely agree uh I, and and it, it, if you kind of break it down and say he did do a great job on this in the fiat standard or listening to the audiobook uh not too long ago. Uh, but my question to you, Peter, is like and, and, you know, I think Michael Saylor has said this. I said this to my girlfriend when I was super excited about Bitcoin. I was like, it's the best money. This is, this is the most soundest money. Um and then Michael Saylor, I remember he was asked this question and then I connected the dots. He was asked this question on the coin stories podcast, shout out Natalie Brunell, And Natalie asked him like, Hey, uh, what keeps you up at night? And Saylor said the exact same thing that my girlfriend, now my wife said, which is like, people just don't care about sound money. And yeah. that part worries me a little bit. And I'm going to kind of Mix in what you know the recent events that's happening in the US where Elizabeth Warren's bill that would essentially kill Bitcoin in the United States continues to gather momentum. Um, and people are just kind of like, eh, they're, they're distracted, they're distracted by the bread and circuses, so to speak. So, right. does that worry you at all? Right? Because you know, Austrian economy, I agree, it's like we have it figured out, you know, it's sound money, the money's broken, but I still see so many people asleep until the money breaks and then you'll get a a situation like Argentina and something like that, but the money hasn't broken yet. So therefore the incentive isn't there for people to seek an alternative. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, correct. And you know, in a way that's, that, that's just how it works. You know, people don't worry about something, uh, if they can't see it, you know, um, so I agree with you, uh, the past couple of years, we've had a lot of people wake up to inflation. It had seemed very academic and remote. 1970s was the last time that we had double-digit inflation. That was a long time ago. Uh, and so I think that a lot of people have woken up. But at the same time, we're up against 12 years of indoctrination, and specifically indoctrination of children. You know, if you look at, like, the Khmer Rouge, uh, which specifically aimed to indoctrinate children, much like public schools do, it's, it's very, very hard to break them out of that. And generally, there does need to be some kind of crisis Uh, at, at which point, you know, that's kind of showtime and we see whether the frog jumps. I believe I'm optimistic that when, if a crisis comes that the American people will jump. Many other countries have not, unfortunately, the crisis comes and people sleepwalk into it, uh, or the system is too difficult to change by the time the crisis hits. And so people get angry, but it's just kind of dissipated. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really going to be showtime. If a crisis does hit my, you know, what I far prefer to do is what people like you or I do, which is tell the frog that the water's boiling, put a thermometer in them and show them the thermometer, ask them, do you remember, do you remember 20 minutes ago when you felt chilly and you don't feel chilly anymore? Okay. So, you know, trying to get people to see what's coming before the crisis actually hits, because once the crisis hits that opens the window for governments to impose controls that can make it difficult for people to fix it when all of a sudden everybody wakes up. If you take Venezuela, I'm sure that there was some point where pretty much everybody knew that the system was broken. Uh, I'm sure the government was talking about, you know, capitalist uh, plots and, and, you know, U.S. uh, CIA, this and that. Um, but you, you, know, given how bad things got, I'm sure there was a moment where the, the Venezuelan people were ripe to hear a message that maybe they need to reform the system. You know, the kind of message the Argentinian people just voted on. Uh, but I also imagine that by the time it got that far, it was too hard to change the system, right? It was too hard to set up a political party, uh, arbitrary arrests. You get all kinds of things that are pretty standard once you get to that stage of it. So I do think on the right, there's a lot of people who are almost cheering for the crisis, um, accelerationists, because their assumption is that once we get to the crisis, the frog wakes up and then the long nightmare ends. Um, but I do think there's a caveat on that, that, you know, there are many, many countries where it fails and it gets worse, Venezuela being an example. Uh, and, you know, governments will see that coming and they will take measures um to try to prevent that you know I think January 6th um, was essentially you know part of laying the groundwork for that kind of a system where if if we get to the point where the water is boiling uh, they want to have a legal infrastructure that they can stop people from doing much about it
0: yeah and, and the, the January 6th thing was fascinating because you know and, and again this goes to I think this is the Frankfurt School which was repressive tolerance right which is you had movements protests, from you know, we we, we try to stay as as politically neutral on this show, Feeder. So we say collectivists. Let's say the collectivists of, and I know what you I know you know what I'm talking about. So the collectivists, uh, they put on certain types of protests, but that's fine. You guys are okay. You guys are in the capital protesting for certain things. That's okay. But when there is a political movement from the more individualistic side. Um, it's repressed, right? It's demonized. These people are a threat to national security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's all—it's almost in your face. And unless you really kind of understudy, uh, uh, unless you really understand and study the tactics as they're using, it's really not quite uh, uh, obvious to you. And they're on purpose. they they are meant to demoralize you. They're meant to take away all hope. Uh, in order to achieve a certain uh, in order to achieve a, a certain end goal, and and that come, that that's a segue to my next question, which is, I think Bitcoin is not compatible with current U.S. sanction policy. I think Bitcoin is not compatible with uh, the way that governments worldwide have weaponized the money, um, right. and I think that there is going to be an inevitable clash between the two. You have an open monetary network where you can sign up, download a wallet. You don't need a KYC. And then you have a system where it's completely, even though it's not really, you know, the AML system, it's not really that effective. Um, So what's that clash look like to you? You know, Um, what's your take?
1: Yeah, I think more than a clash uh, in the near term anyway, I think it's closer to lifeboat. Um, You know, if you sort of zoom in, to the competitive situation um so if you take sanctions for example so the way that you can sanction somebody with a us dollar is that you can effectively stop them from using the dollar Uh, the thing is you know bitcoin has a quirk where you can identify wallets uh and so assuming that there's some real world nexus uh that is ultimately exposed to the u.s government then you know, if a Chinese uh, company is exporting product to, you know, whatever, Egypt, there, there tends to be some kind of nexus there, like some, some paper trail. Uh, and so there are a lot of situations where I think that Bitcoin directly threatens sanctions less than it might seem on the face. Um, certainly for, for sort of gray market transactions, which don't leave a paper trail anyway. Uh, That's true. But then for a lot of those transactions, uh, they also managed to use the dollar one way or the other through bribes and so on. Um, So I I don't think there's so much a direct clash. I think it's more like we are draining, uh, you know, the explosive out of the (laughs) or the air out of the balloon to use less kinetic terminology um, where, you know, you'll have a lot of commerce that will migrate over to Bitcoin and then if there's a large amount of commerce in that area, let's say, I don't know, content or or even export import, um, then you could get more transactions uh, making use of that in order to avoid sanctions. But I think it's, it's, it's not quite as direct as it might seem on the face. Uh, I think the larger issue and, you know, the thing that has people like Elizabeth Warren uh, in a bunch uh, is that sort of head on substitute or conflict between Bitcoin and financial markets. So the financial oligarchy, every single country on earth, if you go to the capital city and you look for the tallest skyscrapers, chances are it's a bank, right? Every so often you'll have like a resource, you know, company because whatever, Malaysia or something. But generally speaking, almost all the skyscrapers are banks. Banks are fantastically profitable as you would expect in a crony fiat system they have enormous power everywhere so more than sanctions per se i think that that's that's really where the battle comes in i think that's who elizabeth warren is carrying water for she's not doing it for the federal reserve the federal reserve they donate money but they don't donate the politicians uh i think she's carrying it for the banks and that's that's i think the grand battle
0: yeah, and, and, and it's interesting because you would think it's in she, you know, when the Occupy Wall Street movement was a thing, she was like the main proponent money of that. Money talks.
1: Money talks. <laughs> and yep. now and she's like, speak loud,
0: and they do, don't they? And then she gets well, Jamie would, Dylan. Go ahead.
1: It, yeah, I mean, going back to the um, earlier discussion of kind of why things broke this way, I did not expect that to happen. All right, I, I did not expect the largest companies in the world to make common cause with the socialists. All right. I assumed that they would go with the sort of soft socialism of the U S Republican party. You know, we want low taxes. We want, we want light regulation. Uh, and what, what, what surprised me anyway is that boy, they just, they just went all the way over. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I assume what they're thinking is that with enough campaign cash, you can kind of tame the beast right? So, you know, you can put people like uh, AOC or, uh, you know, you can, you, um, I don't know who are some of the more extreme. Anyway, the squad, you can put them in a box and then, you know, you can make enough friends with Elizabeth Warren and Nancy Pelosi that you can basically uh, disarm the socialists from within. Uh, I assume that's what um, that's what they're aiming for. But anyway, I was surprised by that. I assumed that, you know, once money really made its way into politics and we got this sort of corporate Uh, corporatist union of state and company uh, which again has an f word that becomes an ism but we have to avoid that word uh i i didn't think that they would make common cause with the socialists
0: yeah i mean it's it's almost i mean but this isn't that what always happens though that's that's kind of you know like uh i forget what the in
1: 1930s Germany, they went the other direction. So they took the lesser of two evils and they teamed up with the national socialists as opposed to the international socialists. Okay,
0: okay, fine, fine. But Peter, we all know yeah. that it's both – it's two sides of the same coin. Right? They are almost identical. I have to go full Always. screen. So if you go like all the way – I don't know if I'm left right now. But if you go all the way left, there's communists. And then yep. there's you go a couple steps to the right, there's fascists. Yeah. And then you go all the way to the other side and you get like individualist, individualists and libertarian and all that. So I I, I, sure. and, I mean, it, and it's in the name. It's in the name. What the party yep. that was in power in the 30s, they put it in yep. the name, that word socialist.
1: Yeah. Yeah, literally. Right. So, you know, if we put them like if we array them on a scale of and to communism. So, OK, these are random numbers. Don't quote me on this. Uh, the German communists at that time in the 1930s, let's call them a 60, and then the national socialists were like a 50 in terms of their progression towards communism. I mean, they were almost the same freaking party. But the thing is, the capitalists chose the lesser of two evils from their perspective, right? The main difference being that the national socialists were okay with companies running their, you know, uh, making profits, uh, getting nice take-home pay, keeping the the original staff, nobody has to go up against the wall. What they said is, look, you can do whatever you want as long as you obey. Okay. Now the obey, you know, ultimately got real close to communism. Um, But anyway, so, you know, in that grand scheme of socialism, they were slightly less socialist from companies' perspective, than the communists, and so the companies went with the lesser of two evils. What surprised me in the U.S. and I think really around the world, uh, and you know maybe this is the genius of Klaus Schwab, but what surprised me was that you know generally the main parties in every country are socialist. I can't think of a country at the moment uh, where the main party is not socialist. They're just two flavors of socialism. Uh, but what surprised me is that these big companies went with the the worse of the two, they didn't go with the lesser of two evils. They went with the greater of two evils. And I think, it, you know, I, I don't know that they planned this out in their heads, but I think ultimately they've put a bet uh, that they can bribe the, the you know, worst of two evils into at least um, uh, punishing them last. I'm trying to avoid violent words. We used to be able to say a lot of things we can't, but anyway, they want to be punished last um by these people but that that really surprised me i assumed when the corporatists made their play to take over the country that they would go with the soft socialists and not the hard socialists but of yeah. course, I see people like elizabeth warren i mean so far their strategy is paying off you know I'm, I'm i'm very impressed it's working out just the way they wanted where people like elizabeth warren are now going from you know anti-wall street to uh, you know, discovering how important it is to have a, you know, stable financial system that has no outside interference. So, I mean, kudos to them, boy, it's, it's, it's worked like a charm so
0: far. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. If, if, if you haven't been paying attention, if you're not well read on these things, you know, you're, it's, it's, to me, it's obvious. And it, perhaps it's because I immigrated and I came here yeah. and, yeah. you know, and maybe you see things, And maybe that's why Miami-Dade County voted a certain direction versus every other metropolitan city in the U.S. uh, (laughs) Because you're like, I've seen this. (laughs) I I spent
1: most of my life out of the U.S. So I grew up in Germany, Japan, um, about five years in Mexico. So it's the same. Like once once you've been outside long enough and then you sort of see the comparisons with, you know, places like Indonesia or Argentina, it's really clear what's happening. Um, and you know, in fairness, a lot of Americans now are waking up to it. I think Americans imagined it could never ever happen here, right? We felt protected partly by the civil society, uh, partly by the constitution. But the past couple of years, I think have woken up a ton of people. And then the economic problems are they're waking up a lot of people who may not have been open to the idea that we have fundamental problems but now they are, right? They're starting to question the system. And once you question the system, you start listening to both sides. And once people start listening to both sides, I say this in all honesty, our arguments are better. I mean, across the board, you know, if you look at the kind of, just look at the kind of engagement, okay? Like when CNN does an article and it gets a lot of view because CNN has, you know, bought audience over the years. This is all media companies buy audience. Um, if you do that in our gig, you're, you're a fraud. But anyway, you know, the New York Times, CNN, all of them bought their audiences. And when you look at the kind of reaction they get when they say things, nobody's, people see it because they bought this audience, but nobody listens to them. Nobody cares about it. People don't sit there and debate. I mean, it's a, it's a tiny amount of engagement that they're getting. Nobody cares about their arguments. Even the people who are already like their installed bought base don't care about it. So, you know, if you've got somebody who's politically up for grabs, okay, they're like a political independent and they're pissed off about the cost of living. All right. And so they start questioning things to start looking at different narratives. They're going to see one article from CNN and then they're going to see another article by the kind of free speech people that we have on our side. It's no competition. Of course, they're going to come over to our side. So- I mean we are winning hearts and minds but at the same time you know we are up against that sense that um propaganda you know you've got the 12 uh years of propaganda you've got new kids running through it every single day you got new ones coming out who you know we have to deprogram as if they're in a cult um you know so even as we win we're still like it can look like we're just um treading water because they have so many of these institutional benefits.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And then once the, you know, like once, like what I noticed is once they started losing, essentially they implemented really the open border strategy, right? So you kind of flood the system, get people, you know, hooked so to speak to that free, that sweet, sweet, sweet free money. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you have a whole new block of voters. This has been done so many times. It just hasn't been done here. So right. like it's very shocking for it to happen here, but uh, Opti and I, my producer, who's hanging in the back, we we've been talking about this for quite a while. I'm really optimistic for the U.S. for three reasons, right? First is the First Amendment, which is getting badgered. Mm-hmm. Uh, second is the Second Amendment, yep. and then the sovereignty of the individual states, which creates in, uh, yep. competition between the All states, true. right? So yeah, which
1: um, yeah. yeah yeah you could summarize that as the Tenth Amendment which uh, constrains the federal government to a very, very small number of things and everything else belongs to the states. And then the states can be the laboratory of democracy and they can experiment with all kinds of things. By the way, the 10th Amendment does not give the federal government control over money. So that would mean that both, <laughs> I mean, it, any kind of um, financial management that treasury does is not constitutional, that's 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 not delegated. Uh, and of course the Federal Reserve would be unconstitutional. It's not delegated. Uh, According to the 10th Amendment, if the power is not literally listed in the Constitution, then the federal government is not allowed to do it. And there's certainly nothing in there about printing fiat money.
0: Yeah, yeah. But they got away with it anyways. And someone in the comments uh, mentioned this about 1913. They said, uh, wasn't the federal income tax implemented? Yes, it was implemented the same year as the federal reserve was, uh, was created or, you know, began, that's not a coincidence. (laughs) Right. Go ahead. Yeah, no,
1: that was really their moment. I mean, that was, um, the, you know, miracle year for socialists really all across the West. That's when they captured it. Uh, one of my favorite, if you ever watched Daunton Abbey, which my wife loves it, which means that I love it. Um, or at any (laughs) rate, I have to watch it and what's funny about it so it's a series and it spans multiple years and you know a bunch of the episodes are before world war 1 and then a bunch of them are after and i think it's just it's just great for sort of showing people how the world changed world war 1 was i mean it was the most transformational i can't think of anything certainly not i don't know maybe in a millennia maybe not since the mongol conquest it has been such a massive change everything changed it gutted the traditional institutions and replace them with government versions of it, whether that was education, uh, the, you know, moral, uh, suasion that used to be handled by the church. So that was independent from the government. Okay. It captured all these things. And fundamentally it was the Bismarck plan, right? That was Otto von Bismarck in uh, Prussia. His idea was that you want the state to take over all of these, uh, social institutions so that the state makes itself, necessary. And so that, um, you know, individual, like people don't rise up against the state because they need the state, right? The state is paying their pension or, uh, they work for the state, whatever it is. So, I mean, it was, it was a very intentional plan he implemented in Prussia and then world war one was really when they managed to implement it, uh, really across the West.
0: Yeah, no. And I I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, so, okay. So we've been talking about some dark, Dark things, dark subjects, right? You know, a bit of history, this collectivist takeover, to put it nicely. Um, And let's talk about, you know, what Corey says, CEO of Swan, um, the bright orange future, which I think that Bitcoin is, Bitcoin and the internet, both things play a very critical part in in that future. So how long do you think this transition will take? I think we'll win. Uh, the reason that I think we'll win uh, Peter is because I think Bitcoin's incentives are greater than than uh, yeah. anything they have in my opinion. I think right. they're gonna rely on coercion, but my money's on incentives in 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 my opinion. So how long is this transition gonna take? Do you think Bitcoin's gonna win? Is it Is it a foretold like, you know, just check that box or do we need to fight peacefully, right? YouTube fight peacefully? It's a metaphor. Um, <laughs> what What are your thoughts? spar (laughs) Spar, sparring
1: between friends so i think there are two dynamics um one of them is fiat versus commodity and the other one is gold versus bitcoin okay so if we ask um is bitcoin going to win i think those are the two dynamics and i'll take the simpler of them which is gold versus bitcoin uh i think bitcoin is fundamentally superior to gold um it has actually better supply dynamics you know, gold is, um, new gold is dug up. And so that's an inflationary impetus. And that's pretty standard at about a percent and a half a year. Actually, amazingly, like over centuries and all kinds of different technology and the industrial revolution, all the rest of it, gold just marches like clockwork about a percent and a half a year. Um, And Bitcoin, meanwhile, you know, of course, it's going to have a lower inflation rate than that. Uh, And, you know, you have different supply caveats to gold, like what if we find the asteroid uh, that's made of gold and Elon can mine it with robots or, you know, what if they figure out a way to extract gold from seawater, which, you know, it's been like a perpetual motion machine that cranks have been trying for a long time. But fundamentally, there's a there's a lot of gold in the ocean just floating around. If you go to the beach, you when you come out of the water, you've got gold on you. There's a bunch of it. And so, anyway, there are these kind of weird little quirks to gold where the supply dynamics are not as good. Uh, And then the other one, of course, is that Bitcoin can't be uh, seized the way that gold can, right? So, I I love gold dearly. uh, But if you are talking to, like, if you're a gold bug and you're talking to a paper money bro, then after you got done explaining how amazing gold is, he's going to ask you, okay, if it's so super, why does no country use gold? And the simple answer is that violence is very profitable. You know, so if you want to have a gold-backed currency, then you have to tell the world where your gold is, right? You can't say it's backed by gold, but it's hidden because I don't want the government to find it. All right. So nobody's gonna accept it <laughs> because I can do that. And so you actually have to prove it, right? You have to, you have to show where it is, you have to give the address, you have to, you know, do assays, you have to do all this and of course governments can also find the address they can look it up on google maps and then they're going to come and visit your gold facility and they're going to have a chit chat uh so governments you know i mean really gold makes it extremely easy for governments to seize the monetary system you know there's about 20 locations even for a country like the us but for a smaller country i don't know you got like two three neighborhoods you could literally get a squad of a SWAT team and split them up and seize the entire money of the nation in one go. Uh, It's got a fundamental flaw. And I think it's ironic that the fundamental flaw of gold is the very fact that it's physical, right? This is why people like gold. They say, no, no, you can't drop Bitcoin on your foot. You know, gold is real, you can bite it. You can't eat it, but you can bite it. And that turns out to be the fatal flaw of gold. It is exceptionally easy for government to seize. a gold-based system. I mean, it very obligingly actually goes out and gathers up all the gold and puts it in one spot and then tells the government where it's located. (laughs) you know, from that perspective, it's it's kind of a dodgy prospect. Uh, Okay, so I think that Bitcoin is absolutely superior to gold. The next question is fiat versus commodity. And there, you know, I think that the question is timing. Okay, so if the system is going to collapse, like in the next five or 10 years, which I think is unlikely, uh, then people are going to kind of go with what they know, right? And in terms of market share, the vast majority of people still don't understand Bitcoin. Uh, Gold is exceptionally easy for people to understand. Uh, Even if you've never heard of gold, like if you've been living in the Sentinel Islands in India and you've never heard there's such a thing as gold, uh, I imagine it's pretty easy to explain what's happening here commodity money physical commodity money is is very sort of intuitive uh, so i think you know if the system is going to die in five years then most likely we're going to revert to the gold standard that nixon broke uh, there's still living memory of that uh, on the other hand if the collapse is going to take longer than that you know then in 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 the background because bitcoin i think is superior money it's constantly winning new converts partly by people like us explaining what Bitcoin is, like this specific conversation we're having, uh, but also just age. You know, a a sort of quirk of the world is that old people uh, (laughs) are more resistant to new ideas. Uh, You know, if you look at, say, Austrian economist, like people who um, would self-describe as Austrian economists, all right, anybody over age 60 is almost certainly a gold bug and only a gold bug. Anybody under age 40 is almost certainly a Bitcoiner and only a Bitcoiner, right? There's a very, very strong age um, uh, aspect to this. So if you kind of sum that up, so I think absolutely fiat is doomed. The only question is when uh, will it take five years? Will it take 30 years? If it's closer to 30 years, then I think the inherent superiority of Bitcoin will have gained enough mental mind share by 30 years from now that we're going to skip gold and we're just going to go direct to Bitcoin. If on the other hand, the collapse is coming in, you know, five years, then, uh, I think almost certainly we go to gold. And at that point, you know, we basically live in the world we do now where Bitcoin continues taking mind share, but in this case, it takes it from gold, not from fiat.
0: Gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, so we are. I do want to be respectful of your time. We are getting to the top of the hour, so my question for you, Peter, is: We are heading into the year of the having, uh, and we're also heading into one of the most turbulent elections in American history. Uh, and uh, these are some crazy, crazy times. So, what are your expectations for Bitcoin? Uh, you know, the next couple of years, if if history repeats itself, right? Bitcoin tends to uh, go parabolic about a year after the halving, so 2025, but it really starts to, uh, you know, turn on its engines the year of the halving and you start to see that slow crawl up. So are you optimistic about uh, Bitcoin's future in these turbulent times? Uh, What's your take? Final question.
1: Yeah, I am. Uh, Of course, prices can do, you know, anything. Who knows, it could drop 90% because uh, governments could try to hunt it down. Anything could happen. However, I think that the most likely outcome is that it will soar. I'm not a huge fan of having as a price driver per se. Um, you know, normally in statistics, you need a fairly decent-sized sample. And you know, when we're talking about havings, what we have, what three, four, we don't have many. Um, so you know, who knows? Um, every time it's halved in the past, there have been various situations uh 2016 the economy had been going slow for a long time and then it it uh, bounced back up uh 2020 was uh weird in many ways uh, <laughs> you know 2012 you had the European debt crisis you know you've got noise in every one of these um so I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in having per se I mean it's fun to cheer it on um but I think the larger issue is what you're talking about those those crises uh coming in so you know inflation is very much alive remains alive the uh progress that's been made so far has largely been a freebie from oil coming back down it generally does that whenever a recession is coming in fact in 2008 oil dropped 80 percent uh and other than that inflation has not come down very much so right I think inflation is driving it I think the other thing is the political stability uh, instability that you mentioned you know one of the things I think that's fascinating about Bitcoin is that it was invented for um more or less bank bailouts right and you know that was the genesis block but then we keep discovering you know there's like a a a sort of the running joke where we say bitcoin fixes this and then the other guys are like what is it gonna you you know is it gonna cook my bagel um what bitcoin fixes everything and the irony is that we keep having these crises and every single one bitcoin fixes it so you know you take (laughs) trudeau with the speech uh you know cracking down on free speech up in Canada you know and you had Bitcoiners who I mean it was it was fantastic right you had hundreds of Bitcoiners who just jumped in their car dead of winter uh drove out to Ottawa to to you know help truckers um actually get uh donations so they could eat right um you know the inflation when when Satoshi you know put out the Genesis block you could argue I mean of course inflation was back of his mind that's why he modeled Bitcoin on gold but it, it's like we, we, we just keep discovering that every single crisis that we keep coming into, uh, Bitcoin, you know, finds a new purpose <laughs> or well, I mean, Bitcoin doesn't find it. People, people discover that, yes, Bitcoin does fix this and it fixes that and it fixes the next one and so on. Uh, so I don't know what the crisis is going to be. Um, you know, the, in the horse race for what their next COVID is, uh, cyber attack seems to be a mm-hmm. popular one. Uh, war, you know, of course, but I mean, you know, war is kind of their permanent, uh, shtick. So of course they're pushing back that, but yeah, cyber. And, you know, we have some of the smartest people on our side and, uh, like in terms of programmers and, it, you know, if you take the people who are suspicious of the state and are interested in finding ways to go around it, I mean, Bitcoin has like a 99% share of those kinds of heroes on earth so whatever they come up with i am certain that bitcoin is going to show us some awesome new function to get around it
0: beautiful beautiful Yep, i completely agree uh i say personally bitcoin or slavery um i think that's uh you know that's really the two choices that we have in front of ourselves i do agree i do agree with you we have the you know the best team of ours on our side uh that's fueled by incentives that's fueled yep. for uh you know the thirst for freedom go ahead yes
1: Yes, absolutely. Yep. I'm 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 very happy with our team. I know that they have all the institutions, they have all the power, they have all the money, they they outnumber us like a million to one. But I love our team. I am thrilled to be on the wall with,
0: with all y'all. <laughs> absolutely. Honored to be in the trenches with you too, Peter. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Simply Bitcoin IRL. Guys, we'll be back with the live show tomorrow, 15 PM Eastern Standard Time. Until then, have an amazing night. See you guys later.